This is a Rooster Teeth production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a supplemental episode of Black Box Down. Uh, we're going to do something a little different this time since it's a supplemental episode. We don't have a, like any specific incident we want to cover. Instead, uh, we're just going to be uh, talking. It's going to be uh, me, Gus, and of course, Chris, like always. Hello. Uh, hello, Chris. And we've also got our producer, Dennis, uh, who's going to be joining us. Hello, Dennis. Hello. We haven't really talked about it too much in the show, but recently I've started taking pilot lessons. What do you call it? Pilot lessons? I'm a student pilot. And Dennis is as well. Dennis is actually, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, just about to get his private pilot license. And uh, we just wanted to talk a little bit about the process. I think there's a lot of questions. Even going into this, I had a lot of questions about the process. And just wanted to talk about it and some of the experiences and what it's like. So join us if you're curious to hear uh, some of uh, what goes into getting a pilot license here in the United States. On this episode of Black Box Down. <laughs> so what is it like? It's interesting like there's a lot that goes into it i'm not nearly as far along as dennis is in the process Mm -hmm. i think right now i have about 10 hours more or less flying what are you at dennis i'm just over 60 hours so much more experienced how long before you like first take a class to you actually are flying a plane first class yeah (laughs) first class yeah the first class you immediately start i mean you obviously you have an instructor there with you uh-huh. But I mean, you start doing the basics immediately. I mean, you start doing everything. I mean, the instructor's helping you, telling you what to do. But from the first class, you are the one who is taxiing the plane down the runway, taking wow. off and doing all the, the flying. Hopefully, the instructor only steps in if you're doing something really bad. <laughs> it tells you what not to do. So, but like, I mean, you you, all, you both knew a lot of about flying a plane going into it, right? And I say that as in like you've both done simulations and obviously studied a lot of uh, uh, pilots and, and and airplanes. But what if someone like knows nothing about a plane? Well, I didn't know anything when I started. I kind of went into it like pretty blind. Really? Yeah, I, I wasn't really familiar with the scene whenever I first started. Before you flew then for your first time, did you have to do... Well, so Chris, I guess for everyone to know... There's two kinds of lessons, essentially. There's the one where, obviously, where you fly and you go up in the plane. But there's also what they call ground school, where you sit on the ground, you know, in a room with your instructor and go over the principles of flying. So, Dennis, since you didn't know anything before starting, did you have to do a ground school before you started flying or did you just go straight into flight? I was supposed to go straight into flight, but the day my first flight was scheduled, the clouds were at, like, 2,500 feet. And Mm -hmm. so my instructor at the time was just like, oh, we're not going to fly today, but we'll talk. We'll do like a little bit of a, of a brief and talk about what you can expect on your first flight. And like, he went over the basic principles and like, you know, lift drag and all that. So we did a little bit of ground at the very first, but just, that's just because we couldn't fly. Mm -hmm. So uh, Dennis said something interesting there that I want to dig into a little bit. He said there were clouds at 2,500 feet. When you start learning how to fly, in my mind, it almost seems counterintuitive. But when you first start flying and you get your license, you fly under what they call, we've talked about this before in in episodes, you fly under VFR rules, visual flight rules, which means when you're flying, you're really focused on looking outside the plane. Like you're not focused looking at your instruments. You're focused on learning the feel of the plane, learning Mm. what things should sound like. It's kind of like driving a car. Like when you drive a car, you're really not looking at your speedometer and your gauges. You kind of have a feel for it. So when you first start flying, you're trying to develop that feel. So as part of VFR, you can't have winds that are too high. You can't have overcast days. Like typically, if there's clouds, 
at or below 3,500 feet, you're probably not going to fly VFR. You probably have to reschedule. So when Dennis says there were clouds at 2,500, okay. you can't really fly. Because if you get into a cloud, you can't see anything. You need to have instrument rating to be able to do yeah. that. And when y'all did it, and this might vary class to class, was it like there were a couple people or was it like so? Like how, what's the class like? It's just you and the instructor. It's one-on-one. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah the, the, the planes are... So Dennis and I go to the same flight school. And most uh-huh. flight schools start with... There's like a few different kinds of planes you can use to start learning on. The most popular one, hands down, is the Cessna 172. So that's what we're both flying in, which is a relatively small plane. There's room for two pilots. So in this case, yourself and an instructor. And there is a back seat, but I would love to see someone sit in that back seat because it is tiny. I would do it. I will do it. <laughs> the back seat is, you could technically fit two people in the back seat. I don't think, I, there's, it's going to be real tight for two people. But I flew the owner of the school one time Whoa. from Austin Executive to Bergstrom with my instructor. We were getting ready for a flight and the, the owner of the school came out and he's like, oh, I need to go to Austin. Do you mind dropping me off? And so <laughs> you sat in the back and we flew him and, and it was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, the school that we go to or that we're both learning at, we have the option of either flying out of Austin Bergstrom, which is you know the, the airport for Austin, where I guess it's what people consider the airports where everyone flies in and out of. Or you can fly out of Executive, which is a smaller private airport off of the toll road kind of in East Austin. Where do you typically fly out of, Dennis? Now I typically fly out of Executive. Um, During the start of my training, the school wasn't based in Executive. So we flew out of uh, the first like 30 hours or so of my training. I was out of Bergstrom. And then the school expanded and it was more convenient for my instructor and myself to fly out of Executive. So do most pilots start with this like private plane, smaller planes, and then go into if someone wanted to become like a, a commercial pilot would they then move on or is there like other classes to enroll for like big planes so i think from my experience of what i've seen i think that there are two different avenues and two different paths that most people take to flying commercial airlines like what you're used mm-hmm. to flying on right when you buy a ticket uh one is people are they fly in the military and that's okay. very yeah. common people are pilots and they have they get their experience flying in the military what we're doing is called general aviation. So it's also possible to get there via general aviation where you start this way, you learn how to fly in these small planes, uh, and then you you know, you know just get experience. You have to get a lot of hours and work your way up. Typically, like let's say, for example, if I wanted to become a pilot for one of the big airlines, you get your private pilot license like this, like we talked about. You get your VFR, then you keep going, then you get your instrument rating, so you can fly IFR, you know, and that allows you to do different things. So basically, you just keep adding certifications. You get IFR, uh, you can do like, uh, what do they call IMC? Is that instrument meteorological conditions? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's VFR or it's normal private pilot license, your PPL. Then you get IFR certified. And then you can be get your commercial license. And then you can get your CFI. Certified flight instructor. Yeah. Yeah. And the commercial license is where you're allowed to start being paid. But no one's going to hire you at when you first get your commercial license. Because we've talked about before. In the United States, you're required to have 1,500 hours of experience before you can like, fly for an airline, for example. That's why lots of flight instructors are doing that in order to build hours. That way they can get their 1,500 and then begin flying at a, oh. for a commercial airline. So a lot of instructors are training to... Be, okay. Hmm. Yeah, it's like that's the way they get uh, hours. And I've read also like in the... I, I, I'm subscribed to numerous like the flying subreddit and aviation subreddit. Uh, there's other jobs that people will take as well in order to build hours. Like there's a very niche job that some people take mm-hmm. where it's a uh, pipeline inspection. 
Mm-hmm. And all they do is they fly a plane along oil pipelines and the plane has cameras on the bottom so that oil companies can inspect their pipelines and huh. make sure that there's no leaks and everything's okay. And that's an easy way for them to get tons of hours because they just have to fly along a pipeline for numerous hours in a day. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that is a really... And it sounds like a good gig too. It's like simple but also good experience, yeah. Speaking of the subreddits, if anyone who's listening and is also a member of that, feel free to give us a shout out. <laughs> Shameless plug or request for plug. <laughs> yeah, so I read, uh, I read all of those subreddits constantly. But so I think we kind of gave a broad stroke of how people would go about it. And there's different mm-hmm. certifications. There's also um, the planes we learn on are single engine. There's like a different certification you get for multi-engine planes as well. So you can fly complex planes. Uh, well, that, things most, that nature. most the commercial ones would be multi-engine, right? Right. So like, and that's, that's just one of the steps you go along the way to get that commercial certification. And then as part of it, there's also, this is a, an interesting thing I guess I didn't really realize. As part of it, you also have to get medical exams and you have to be deemed oh worthy to fly a plane or not worthy you have to be deemed healthy enough to, to fly a plane <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you're worthy it's like a sword in the stone <laughs> you're of strong moral fiber no, <laughs> your your heart will not stop probably but uh there's different classes of medical that you get so for like general aviation like what we're flying mm-hmm. what dennis and i are flying you get what's called a class three medical certification which is like the easiest one to get you go and you know, they make sure you don't have any underlying health conditions. Your heart's healthy. Uh, when you're young, like Dennis, the medical certification is good for five years at a time. When you're yep. old, like me, I have to redo it every two years. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but I guess pilots, like commercial pilots, do they have? They probably have to do the same thing and have to have to stay like in fit, right? Correct. So what I just said was, general aviation requires a third class medical. If you're flying commercially, you need a first class medical, which is like more stringent, more tests. So there's three different ones. There's third class, second class, first class. And they're just like constantly evaluating your physical health and mental health to make sure that Hmm. um, you're fit to fly a plane. And I actually had a little bit of a a hiccup with my third class medical. You know, when I went and there's special doctors you go to that are approved by the FAA to do this. Uh I went to one of the doctors here in Austin. You know, we go through the whole medical. Everything's fine. Then I told him I have sleep apnea. You know, I have to sleep with a CPAP on. He's like, okay, that's no problem. So we go through the whole thing. Then at the end, he's like... I don't want you to freak out. He said, but because you use a CPAP when you sleep, the FAA is going to send you a letter in a couple of weeks and they're going to want information about your CPAP. If you don't send it back to them, they're going to cancel your medical. (laughs) So you need to send them all the information that they ask for. And they ask for like a year's history of my use of the CPAP because the machine records when you use it. And they want to see that like I use it like 75% of the time for a minimum of six hours a night just to make sure that I'm not having any underlying health problems because of it. Hmm. So I got that letter a couple of weeks ago and I had to, <laughs> it was a little bit of a pain because I had to go to my doctor and I had to be like, hey, can you give me all the records you have about me needing this machine? And I had to like send it all back to the FAA so that they can approve it. It's kind of like, I don't know if it's true. I just remember when I was a kid hearing that if you wanted to become an astronaut, you had to have like 20-20 vision or something. Like there were all these, I'm sure similar kind of health requirements, but I, had, I guess you don't think I had thought about all the health stuff in terms of piloting. But it all makes sense. It's all good. Speaking of eyesight, so whenever I got my driver's license, I got in high school and I was required to wear glasses when I drove because mm-hmm. I took the eye test and they're like, yeah, you need to wear glasses, whatever. Whenever I got my my medical for flying, I, I did the eye test and the guy was like, no, you're fine. You don't need glasses. And so I thought it was real funny that I was required <laughs> to, to wear <laughs> glasses to drive, but not to fly. But then huh. I, I, I retook the 
the eye exam at when I renewed my driver's license and I don't need glasses when I drive anymore either. I think you're getting better with age. Yeah, somehow my vision improved, I guess. But I thought it was real funny for a while there that I legally <laughs> I could fly without glasses, but I couldn't with driving. And it's, it's interesting you say that. It brings up another point. So once you get your medical, you need to carry that medical certificate with you when you fly. So like I keep my, I have a special bag that I take when I fly and I've got my medical certificate in there and it's even got like a little note like, must wear eyeglasses while flying. <laughs> um, so how long before, I, I, I don't know if this is part of the class, like you, you fly without someone else in it. Do you have to go through the full, like your full license or is that part of the training? I'm doing that for the first time next week. Oh, is that terrifying? Exciting. Yes, it, it kind of <laughs> is. Uh, so like I said, right now I have about 10 hours. Um, my instructor's confident that I can, they call it a solo flight. My instructor's confident that I can solo at this point. So next week, you know, we're just going to do refresher, get back up there, you know, do some more uh, practice landings. And then uh, I'll probably do one next week. Maybe by the time this episode's out, I'll have, uh, I'll have done it. So everyone's different. There's no, I think that's the thing that shocks people that I talk to about it. There's no set curriculum. There's no set minimum like time that you, that requires. It's dependent on the person becoming proficient and confident at doing um, the tasks that they need to learn. So in this case, you know, fundamentally when you start, you need to learn a few things. You need to learn like climbing and descents and turns, uh, obviously, because everything's kind of a combination of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's some additional advanced maneuvers you need to learn, like uh, stalls, stall recovery, slow flight situations. And yeah, you just practice, 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 and practice landings over and over. Do Would you, I mean, because I know you played Flight Simulator a lot, Gus. We've done videos in them, which you can watch at Rooster.com if you're a first member. We'll have a link in our link tree. Uh, but how, how much do you think that helped? I think it hurt. <laughs> if oh, I'm really? Being, if I'm being totally honest... I picked up a lot of bad habits in Flight Simulator that when I started flying an actual plane, it was like, oh, I need to unlearn some things that I learned. Oh, that's interesting. Because I, yeah. I would have I thought it would have helped. Well, the thing is, when you play a flight simulator, there's no real physical feedback. So mm-hmm. you're not really sure what would happen. Whereas you know, when you're in the plane and you do something, you feel it. You know what's going on. So uh, some of the things that you do in a simulator, you don't feel. But when you're in the plane and you do them, you're like, oh, no, that's bad. That's wrong. Should definitely not do that. <laughs> to give a, a specific example, like in a flight simulator, just messing around, I would mm-hmm. regularly do this thing that's called cross-controlling, where you're you know, banking the plane, you're using your ailerons to bank in one direction, but your rudder might be trying to turn the tail in the opposite direction which results in what's called uncoordinated flight, which, if you do it <laughs> badly enough, results in stalls and spins and uh, a big fireball. So it's kind of, you're making the plane, telling the plane to go two different directions, opposite directions? Right, I was making, I was yeah. making the, the front go in one direction and the back go in a different direction. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that shakes the plane a lot. Not necessarily shaking, it just definitely makes it unstable. It feels uh-huh. bad. You can tell. It feels wrong and bad. Yeah, it, it is interesting when your plane is like, how well you can feel your plane is uncoordinated because you feel like you feel like you're diagonal or something like it's yeah. weird well the, the weirdest sensation to me i don't know if you'll you'll agree with this dennis is when i started so when you turn like when you're banking like if you're doing a banking turn you really have to apply a good amount of, well you apply some rudder in the direction that you're banking and when you first start i feel like you don't know that and you're not proficient at it so your turns feel kind of sloppy then as you get more experience and as you really apply that rudder in your turn your turns feel better like you feel like you're more solid in your seat like the like the gravity is is 
acting in the correct way and you're not sliding around. Yeah, I feel like it. I feel more like a like how you would imagine a fighter pilot feels like whenever they like pull right. out. You know what I mean? It feels more like oh, the plane is like really moving how it w- wants to move now, and like right. it's, it's like, really turning. It's like pushing you into the seat, down into the seat instead of like yeah. sliding down towards the ground. It feels totally different, and you can tell a hundred percent if uh, if you're doing it right or not once you practice enough. I just want to make a note. I just kind of want to amend something. Mm-hmm. I said I have 60 hours. Most people can get their license at around 40 hours is the minimum you need. The reason why mine is so high is not because I'm a bad pilot or anything. It's just I took time off and I had to like kind of relearn things. So I don't want anyone out there who's privy yeah, yeah. To, to think that, oh, I had trouble with my uh, lessons or anything. So when you get your final evaluation to get your license, it's called a check ride. And you mm-hmm. get a designated pilot examiner, typically, what they call them, a DPE flies up with you and then evaluates you. It's like a test, right? They Well, they give you like a, an oral test and then they fly with you and you take a flying test to make sure you know everything. And they simulate failures and they quiz you on, on things to make sure you're proficient. Is it someone different than your instructor? Correct. It's a FAA-designated person uh, who comes out and gives you this, this exam. If I remember right, Dennis, I think you were ready for your check ride, but then COVID happened and you had to take some time off because yeah, of the I pandemic. Took, I took about a year off. I think from flying and it really kind of sent me back. You know, I wasn't familiar with the plane anymore and I had to like get re-comfortable with certain maneuvers and things like that. So it, it did kind of send me back, but I was uh, ready. And now I, I have a deadline of November 6th. And if I don't take my <laughs> check ride by November 6th, I have to retake my written exam. Yeah. That's why uh, he's, he's hopefully going to get it all knocked out next week weather wow. that's, the, that's the thing now i watch the weather like crazy i don't know if you're the same mm-hmm. way dennis i'm mm-hmm. always like is it windy today is it cloudy <laughs> is there a chance of rain what's going on like i uh you know we've talked in previous episodes about uh adis the automated terminal information system i listen to adis all the time now I'm like what's the weather can i fly today is it good i'm like a lunatic over here uh listening yeah. to adis all the time i check the four flight weather all the time especially when it's like raining or cloudy and you could see the the radar i feel like I have access to information that no one else has. <laughs> like I, I have all these this fancy weather equipment in my pocket. Yeah, that can just tell me everything that I need to know. That's another thing that shocked me about general aviation, mm-hmm. like getting involved in it, is everyone uses an iPad. Well, almost everyone uses an iPad. There are a few holdouts, but it's like it seems like it's an industry standard. Everyone's got an iPad, and everyone uses this piece of software called ForeFlight. Uh, for everything like it's like in addition to everything in your plane you can use your ipad and for flight for just about everything like for your you know what you would call like a glass cockpit kind of where you can see where you are you can see the weather you can see maps of everything around you you can see the other planes you know where they are in relation to you it's like everything all on the ipad and the reason i think everyone uses ipads is for flight only works on ipads it doesn't work on android tablets oh and does is that not like built into the plane in any way, like some that kind of stuff, or is it? The plane has, depending on the kind of avionics you have, it has it has like GPS and and information and stuff like that. But this is more for like navigational charts. Okay, and can you get service up there, like on a on a cell phone? Yeah, because you're not flying that high, right? You're, I mean, you're. Yeah, I think you're not. If I remember right, I think legally, technically, you're not supposed to, and. Just to be clear, I never use my phone in flight, but uh, you can use ForeFlight, and ForeFlight will, you can download all your charts, so you don't need to be connected oh, to the okay. internet. That's what I was wondering, if it like was like updating it service-wise. I think most 
pilots that I know of get the iPads with the cell service option. Mm -hmm. Most of them do not activate the cell service, but as long as it has the chip in there for cell phone service, then the GPS works. Yep. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. So everyone will get the, the cell phone service iPad, but not use the cell phone service on the iPad. Just it's there. So the GPS. So works. the GPS. Okay. Correct. And you're right. Typically from my experience so far, if we're cruising, it'll be between 3,500 and 5,000 feet at them. I think the highest I've gotten is 5,200 feet. So yeah, you're not technically like super high above the ground at the most. I've been a mile up. We're finally getting to the holiday season, and whether you're shipping gifts to friends and family or sending out holiday orders from your Etsy side hustle, why not dodge the hectic traffic and save some time and money with Stamps.com? Access all the post office and UPS shipping services you need without taking the trip. And with Stamps.com, you'll get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. Going to the post office instead of Stamps.com is like taking the stairs instead of the elevator. Just going up a couple of floors? Sure, take the stairs. Walking up 30 flights a day? You could use a break. If you spend more than a few minutes a week dealing with mail and shipping, Stamps.com has your back. You know me, I'm all about efficiency. I love being able to print postage at home, apply everything, and I can either just leave stuff here uh, at my mailbox at home for the, for the post office to take, or I can drive down and just drop it off. Don't have to wait in line there. Don't have to worry about, you know, dealing with other people. It's super easy, super convenient. Uh, so you can save time and money this holiday season with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code BLACKBOXDOWN for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter code BLACKBOXDOWN. Was it as what you expected flying? Or was it more, was it, is it fun? Or like, yeah, what's your, your expectations versus reality? I think it's uh, one of the most freeing sensations that like, I've ever experienced, especially when you're flying solo across country, you just feel so it's kind of like, have you ever been on a motorcycle? No, oh. <laughs> you're, you're going to need to define cross country, Dennis. Okay. Yeah. Uh, cross country is whenever you fly from your like base airport to an airport that is more than 50 nautical miles away. I believe as part of your training, you plan a cross country flight. So like I, I plan a flight from Austin to Lano, uh, which is about 60 miles away with my instructor. We flew that route. We timed it. You have to make like visual checkpoints along the way. Make mm -hmm. sure you hit your marks because you, you have to fly. You have to know how to fly without a map, essentially. And huh. so you plan a route. You you mark visual checkpoints along the route and you time it to make sure you're hitting those checkpoints when you're supposed to hit them and that you are hitting them. And then they bring you to your destination airport. You do that with an instructor and then you do it by yourself. And then you have to do like a longer cross country by yourself where you hit up like three different airports. But whenever you're out there flying by yourself, it's, it's so just like, I don't know. I can't describe it. You just feel like super just empowered. It's really cool. It's a new perspective on things, right? Like I've lived in Austin for a long time, but seeing things from that perspective, like really reorients the city for me. And like, really it was like, Oh, you know, it's a new way to look at things. And it's amazing. Like when you get up and you're just able to see so far, and like see all the surrounding communities. It's uh, it's really incredible. And then how quickly you're able to get around. Like yes, yeah. In in a two hour lesson, I'll fly down to Smithville, practice landing several times, go up, do maneuvers, and then come back to Austin and land. It's like I can't imagine driving to and from Smithville. It would probably take two hours just in a car. Smith, I don't, I don't even know where. That's, that's out past Bastrop. Okay. I think it's like an hour and a half drive or something like that. An hour to an hour and a half drive. Oh yeah. Yeah, that is it's, that does seem like a lot. Yeah, you're able to do go so up much. and down that much, and yeah, 
The other interesting thing is how much wind can affect your flight. Like if you have a headwind, you end up going really slow <laughs> uh, <laughs> on ground speed. But if you have a tailwind, you'll end up going really fast. Like yesterday was a really windy day uh, and I had a lesson here. And uh, a storm had moved through early in the morning. Mm -hmm. But by the time I was flying, it was clear. It was a beautiful day. But what I didn't expect was, you know, we took off. The weather was fine. But then as we were flying, it got windier and windier for some reason. Uh -huh. So we were practicing slow flight maneuvers where you like really get the plane as slow as you can. And uh, you like maintain control of it. And at one point, the headwind was so strong while I was doing slow flight maneuvers that we got down, our ground speed was 14 knots, which is about 18 miles an hour. So it's like you look out the window and it looked like we weren't moving at all. It was just like everything Whoa. was suspended. Just like <laughs> we, we were going slow enough to be in a school zone, if you want to think about it that way. Wow. And it's like you're not moving at all. That doesn't even seem like it should be possible in a plane. I've seen videos of people who with a strong enough headwind doing slow flight get their ground speed to zero. And uh, I've heard that some people can get it negative where they're actually going backwards. I, I've never seen that myself. But it's just weird to think about, like when you're dealing with the wind, you know, you're not touching the ground. Like you think about traveling in a car all the time. It's like you're touching the ground. You're always making ground speed advance. Uh -huh. But when you're in the air, you're not touching the ground. So the wind can be pushing you and you could be, it could be holding you perfectly in the air if you get enough uh, headwind going over your wings. That's, that's so weird to think about. That's so... I it just seems in my mind, you always just need momentum. Like, but I, yeah, it's so bizarre. Uh, and slow flight took me a while to get my head around just because things operate a little differently. You know, you use your pitch to control your speed and your throttle to control your altitude, which is backwards than normal. So it's like when you're doing slow flight, if you want to climb, you increase your throttle. And if you want to descend, you decrease your throttle. But if you want to speed up, you push down, you nose down. If you want to slow down, you nose up. It's just backwards in what you're used to, to doing. There's, um, again, one of the most shocking things to me about learning to fly is that if anybody wants to fly, the FAA publishes books on learning how to fly for free. You can go to the FAA website and download the books that teach you how to fly for absolutely free. You don't have to pay anything. The two books that I downloaded and that I read are the Airplane Flying Handbook, which is commonly called AFH, and the Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge, which people call the P-Hack. There's a whole section in the P-Hack about what they call the region of reverse command, which is like a lot of the slow flight stuff. It's in chapter 11, I think, of the P-Hack. And mm -hmm. just reading that, it's just like, I think I had to read that section like five times because like it just made my brain hurt, like trying to figure out <laughs> like all the technicalities of why things operate the way they do and just trying to understand it all. It's just like so much to try to wrap your head around. You mentioned... Um they're free to download but how much is if someone was like interested in taking lessons and getting their pilot like what is the the cost of of those and i'm sure it varies class to class or how you know but in general it kind of depends on where you fly and who you fly with but for our school the instructors charge 55 dollars an hour i think and then the average plane rental is 130 dollars an hour so cumulative it, and like we said there's no like set amount of time you necessarily mm -hmm. need to do before you get your license. So they can't give you an answer. If you ask like, how much does it cost me to get my pilot's license? They can't give you an exact dollar amount. They can give you a range that they expect it would cost. Yeah. So I think like you could expect at the bare minimum, you could probably spend maybe like $10,000. And then, you know, anywhere between 10 to maybe $15,000 is what you might expect to pay total uh, in lessons before you get your license. That's yeah. So it's, I'm thinking about in terms of like 
you know, college or uh, if someone wanted to become a pilot and do that mm-hmm. as, but so, and that's just for the private pilot, like, yeah, yeah. just VFR private pilot, like, like step one. I just want to clarify that's in the United States, in Europe and other countries, it's much more expensive. The good thing is though, is there's no time frame. So mm-hmm. if you, if you can only afford to fly like once a month, you can do that. And then just, you know, get it over time. There's You don't have to like do it within a certain time frame. So you could really just kind of do it at your own pace. Yeah. That being said, if you don't fly frequently, your skills do atrophy. Recently, we had some bad weather here in Austin and I had to take a week off where I wasn't flying. Mm-hmm. So I went like a week and a half or two weeks without flying. And then the next lesson when I went back, I botched every landing. Like I just felt like I just felt terrible after that mm-hmm. lesson. I was like, I was like, I can't believe that stepping away for that short amount of time my skills atrophied that quickly. Like I, I got really in my own head about it and I was really upset with myself. But it's like, it's the kind of thing where when it was done, you know, we finished the lesson and I was like, you know, all right, I just got to figure out what did I do? Like mentally, what did I do wrong? And then regain that confidence. Like, all right, I'm just going to learn from it. And next time we go out, I'm going to do better. I'm going to nail it. And then, yeah, sure enough, you, you can't get in your own head about it. You have to think like, that was a fluke or just like learn, what can I learn from that? Then you're just going to go back out there and you're going to master it. Yeah. I want to ask you, Gus, you were talking about you know, pitch for speed and uh, power for altitude. Whenever you first talked to me about that, I said that I think you will really start to understand that when you practice your landings. Has the landings helped with that understanding? So it's interesting you say that. After I, that, I, that lesson I talked about that I botched and every landing was bad, when I was reflecting on it and thinking about it, like what could I have done better? That's when it clicked and I was like, oh, this is all slow flight stuff. This is all region of reverse command. If I start applying that knowledge into these landings, it'll go better. And then sure enough, my next lesson, I started approaching it with that mindset and everything went way smoother. So yeah, it absolutely did help. If someone wanted to become a commercial airline pilot, what do you think they might expect to spend in like training and and getting flight hours? And I guess it might vary because they, like you said, there's jobs that they could take, but... Right. I don't know about the United States. I can say that I've read people in Europe who mm-hmm. talk about this kind of thing. I've, again, on the aviation and flying subreddits, I see people talk about this occasionally. People in Europe always complain. They, they're always like upset at Americans because they say that it's so much cheaper to get your license in the United States compared to Europe. Because I've seen people uh, on those subreddits who get their commercial certification and they say it costs them about 150,000 euros. Wow. To get to that point. That's a, I mean, that's that's like uh, like going through grad school, huh? It's a lot. But if you think, of, again, if you make the comparison to like, going to college like this yeah. is like that's something you do if that's going to be your career yeah i mean it's they're expensive <laughs> when you got fuel yeah i mean it makes sense yeah what i've heard i don't know how true it is again i've never flown in europe so i can't speak to that but from what i understand lots of airports in europe for example like the reason it might be more expensive lots of airports in europe charge a landing fee every time your your plane comes down and lands so when you're practicing your landings, if you practice five landings, you pay five landing fees. So like Whoa. you might you might have to pay a $50 landing fee every time you land. If you practice landing five times, there goes 250 bucks. Whoa. Here, I don't have to pay anything for landing fees. I just land. I, I could practice my landings all day if I wanted to. Is that why it's so much? Is that is that the main reason? That's, why it's that's just an example of like, there might be additional fees and things that add up mm. over time. Uh, whereas here we get the luxury of not having to pay you know, a fee like that. And there might, there's probably many others that they have to pay. So what about in the U.S.? What would you say a guesstimate of what it might cost? So I'm reading here from a, a flight school, a place that'll train mm-hmm. you to become uh, a pilot. And they estimate if you have no previous experience and you're starting from zero in the United States to become a commercial pilot, it'll be 
about $85,000. So it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's still a lot. Yeah, it's still a lot. And it takes a long time. I mean, <laughs> so getting a VFR private pilot license like Dennis and I are doing and talking about, it only takes a few months. Mm-hmm. If I continue on schedule, I'll probably get mine in February. And I started really in earnest probably mid-September. So I'm looking at what, five and a half, maybe six months. Yeah. So that first step alone, step one, takes five and a half to six months. And then you have to keep going and learning these other things after that. So, yeah. It's, it, I mean, it, I'm just thinking comparative, like it's like college or you know grad school or something. Yeah. Very similar. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to learn, dude. There's so much. I feel like <laughs> even in the limited amount of time I've spent doing this, I've like I felt like I knew a lot already, and I feel like I've learned so much more. And I've learned that maybe some of the the ways I thought about things was not correct, and that it's it's much easier to think about what we talk about on the show now. Huh? Yeah, that's the the hardest part. Because I mean, honestly, actually flying the plane is relatively easy. The hard part is having all the knowledge and information that you need to know like just sitting in your head. Yeah, like, let me tell you, I've learned that pilots love acronyms. Everything is an acronym. <laughs> you have to memorize so many acronyms to keep uh, knowledge readily available at hand. So it's yeah. like, if I want to remember all the different kinds of, you know, airspaces, like there's an acronym for that, or uh, my emergency procedure, there's an acronym for that. Like, there's so, like everything has an acronym. Even like I, I said earlier, designated pilot examiners, DPEs, everything has an acronym. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's your basic, PLA. PLA? Pilots love acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. It's very, very true. But um, one of the other really cool things is that when you, you know, I'm st- obviously, like I said, I'm still a student. So whenever I show up to the class, you know, we have to walk through a building to get out to um, the apron. And it's like, you just like walk through. And of course, you know, they ask you, you know, who are you here for? They verify your identity and that, you know, you're actually there. And then, you know, once they let you through, it's like you just walk through a door and you're you're standing on the airport, you know? Yeah, uh, it was it's weird because you're just standing there and you're like, I could run to the runway right now if I was crazy yeah. enough to do it. Yeah, when, when I was pre-flighting my plane yesterday before I, I took off, I heard uh, a plane landing and I turned around because where I was, I was at like the parking stall for the planes that was closest to the runway. And I turned around and looked and there's like a, a giant Delta flight just landed right by me. Like I could see it. It's like, oh, it's landing right like right across this grass in this taxiway. It's right there. And it's just cool. Like when you're walking down the apron, you see like all those private jets, all those planes and like people coming and going. Like I watched um, a couple of weeks ago when I was taking a lesson, the local Austin Major League Soccer team was taking off for an away game. So like all the players huh. were there getting up on, you know, their private jet. I was like, oh, yep, there they go. They're going to go up and, uh, and play a game now. <laughs> I, I've never been on a private jet. Me neither, <laughs> but I see them all the time now. Or, or a private plane, even. Mm. Gus, that that building, that the FBO yeah. that you exited out of, it took me so long to realize that the door opens with the push of a button that the person behind the desk <laughs> does. For such a long time, I would walk up to the door and I'd be waving at the sensor, trying to get it open. Oh my and eventually god! Eventually, open. And then <laughs> it took me like I don't know how many times before I realized that oh, I'm just an idiot, and the person behind the desk pushes the button to open it. Yeah, it looks it looks like a sliding glass door like you would see at any business. But yeah, the they when they verify you, they have to push a button to let you through. Luckily for me, the first time I went in there, I asked my instructor, I was like, hey, can you show me the proper procedure so I can go through here so I know what I'm doing in the future? And he showed me like who you talk to, what you say. Oh, which actually raises an interesting point. When you first start, I can only speak to 
probably the experience Dennis and I both had. When I first started, you have to show them your passport or you have to prove that you're a U.S. citizen Mm -hmm. in order to take lessons and be able to fly. I don't know what the process is if you're not a U.S. citizen, but uh, they definitely asked, make sure you bring your passport. You cannot fly without your passport. So for that first time, I had to take it. That way they could authenticate me and uh, allow me to to do all this and get flying. Gus, I wanted to ask, how exhausted are you after a lesson? It's crazy how tired you can get. And not only that, I don't know. Let me ask you a question. Is it just me or do you get really thirsty when you're when you're uh, piloting that plane? Yeah, in the well, especially in the summertime, I get down, my lips are like all dry and God. Yeah, I, I take I a water bottle. Some water. I take a water bottle up with me and I finish it every time. But um, especially on windy days, because you're applying a lot of rudder, my legs feel like jelly. Like yesterday, like I talked about, it was a really windy day. Uh, I got home and I was like, uh, my legs feel so tight. It's like that's my leg day is uh, <laughs> practicing crosswind landings because I was like, man, my my legs are absolutely spent. It's really physical. I, I didn't think about that, the physicality of it all. What, what muscles are you using the most? Like, is it like legs or arms or like how, what parts? Or is it just like the whole thing? Or I would say your legs, especially in my right arm gets sore sometimes because you're, you're constantly having to hold the throttle. So yeah. you constantly have your arm up holding something and you can't like really rest it. That raises an interesting point. So I didn't realize this until I started flying and maybe you'll be interested in this, Chris. You know, you've seen like a yoke, right? It looks like a, mm-hmm. like a letter U kind of. It's got like two sticks. And yeah. you picture putting both your hands on that to fly. Uh-huh. <laughs> but in reality, when you're seated in the left seat, when you're the pilot, the way you're trained is you keep your left hand only on the yoke and your right hand rests on the throttle. So like Dennis is saying, you have to keep your right arm suspended up the entire time you're flying with it touching the throttle just in case something goes wrong. You can make a quick adjustment. And where's the, so it's suspended up? Like where's the throttle? Is it? It's between the two seats. It look, the way I think about it, it kind of reminds me of like the pinball plunger. Yeah. It's like a little knob, but it doesn't, oh. you know, it, it doesn't have a spring in it. It's like, but you like <laughs> push it in to go faster and then pull it back to slow down. Huh. I'd say it's about like six inches above your knee is about where it would be and a little bit forward. So it's, it's kind of like, Kind of an awkward position. Yeah, so just imagine sitting for two hours with your right hand just kind of suspended about six inches above your knee. Yeah, I can it's say, like, yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, at first you're like, yeah, this is no big deal. But then after like a minute or two, you're like, oh, I have to keep doing this. And it's not <laughs> like the throttle is substantial enough for you to really rest your hand on it or put any weight on it. It's like you really have to just kind of hold it. And it's a good thing that you do hold it because this sounds way worse than it actually was. But I had a small incident a couple lessons ago where one of the steps during your pre-flight is there's, a, there's like a little what they call it a throttle friction lock. It's like a little screw that you tighten so that it like adjusts the resistance of the throttle when, you, you know, when you're manipulating it. And the reason that that friction lock is there is because the plane shakes because of the propeller. And if you don't tighten that lock, the throttle might move unbeknownst oh, to you. Because it's, it's, it's shaking that much? It could... Exactly. Yeah, especially when it's turbulent. It can just like kind of bounce out a little bit and you lose a little bit of thrust. And you oh. wouldn't notice if your hand's not on it. Yeah. So... I was taking off a couple lessons ago and, you know, when you take off, you give it full throttle and, uh, you know, we reached uh, our rotate speed and I started rotating and uh, in my hand, I felt the throttle. It's like, this doesn't feel right. And I realized that it had slipped out a little bit. So I had to like push it back up again. And in my mind, I thought, did I do that? Like subconsciously, did I pull it out? Like, like that's, that's weird. And then we kept climbing and we started our turn away from the airport and I felt the throttle come loose again. And I was like, oh, the friction lock isn't set. So like I pushed it up 
again, then had to readjust the friction lock. It's like, if I didn't have my hand on the throttle during takeoff, it could have, you know, really gone low, which is, you know, a critical time when you need as much uh, power as possible. Huh. It, it feels weird that it, it it can do that. That like well, that's why the friction locks there is you're supposed to adjust it. And during my yeah. pre-flight, I thought it felt fine, but obviously that was the learning moment for me. Like, oh, mm-hmm. I need to I need to tighten it more than I think. Yeah, I typically tighten it all the way and then just do a little bit to the left. And that's what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I actually did. I, I alluded to this in our last black box down episode. I actually did injure myself in a really stupid way during oh. a pre-flight a couple of weeks ago. I'll post this image to social media of uh, of the plane so you get a better idea for what it looks like. But it was one of my early lessons. I don't know if it was like my second or my third. And uh, the instructor had just finished landing with the previous student. He had to go in to fill out the, the student's log and, you know, the whatever paperwork. So the instructor told me, hey, you can go do the pre-flight inspection uh, checklist on the plane by yourself. It was my first time doing it. I was like, yeah, in my, head, in my mind, I was like, yeah, I was really excited. I was really proud. Like, <laughs> I'm going to go do the pre-flight. You know, this is my first time doing it by myself. Like, the instructor trusts me, obviously, to do this. So I get out to the plane. I opened up the door, and I put my bag in there into the cabin, and uh, I grabbed the checklist. There's a, there's a paper in the plane. Uh, so I pulled the checklist out, and I turned to start doing the, the pre-flight checklist, and I slammed my left shin into the uh, landing gear strut because it's right there by the cabin. And I like doubled over in pain and I wanted to scream because it hurt so bad. <laughs> I just so happened to be wearing shorts that day. So like I like for like five or 10 seconds, I just like closed my eyes and like suppressed a scream. And then I opened my <laughs> eyes and looked at my leg and it instantly, I got a like a golf ball size lump on my left shin. It just like started swelling like crazy. It was cut and blood was dripping down like uh, my shin. Oh my. Yeah, I was like, my first thought was like, I need to make sure I'm okay. I need to make sure I didn't like fracture it or anything. So like I start putting weight on my leg and like hopping up and down to make sure that I'm okay. And because, you know, if obviously if something's wrong, I can't fly. So I like want to make sure that I'm, I'm in still in decent shape despite this. And yeah, I'm okay. You know, it's, it's fine. It just, it just hurts and you know looks ugly, but like I can still fly. Uh, and it was sore for about two weeks after that. It sucked. It was it was really bad. It's the worst I've ever banged my shin before. How did you hit it that hard? I, like, I guess I was just like taking a stride. I was just gonna turn and walk and just you know the plane's solid. You know, I, I, I yeah, I just collided with it. I tend to bump my head on the flaps pretty often. Oh yeah, they come down and yeah, I could see that. The, you gotta you definitely have to be careful. And I think it takes a little bit of practice to learn. Like, oh, where do you need to watch your head? Where do you need to? Now I'm now I'm very aware of that strut. I <laughs> I will not hit it, I will not hit it again. That's the worst thing. That's uh that's definitely happened to me so far in uh in my time walking uh, to the plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, walking around the plane. And I, I, my instructor wasn't there, but when he came back, I just to be safe, I told him I was like, "Hey, just so you know, I bumped my shin here really hard. It's swollen, it's bleeding." I was like, "I think I'm okay to fly, but let me know if you know you have any concerns or if you think that we should cancel this lesson." He was like, he was like. And he told me I was, he was still okay if I, if I felt okay to fly. I just, you said you had to like hold in a scream really loud. It was just, I was just imagining like the the instructor being like, yeah, go do your checklist. And you're like all of a sudden, <laughs> ah! <laughs> <laughs> just screaming, <laughs> screaming like manically. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to be that person. Um, but. <laughs> We're almost at time here. There's just like, a, just a, I swear, just a couple more things I want to say before we go real fast. I, I'm honestly really surprised at the diversity of people taking lessons at the school. I don't know if you if you think the same thing, Dennis. It's a really 
broad spectrum of people who are learning how mm-hmm. to fly that I see, the students that I see come and go. It's like young people, old people, like all ethnicities, you know, women, men, whatever, like whatever you can imagine. I've seen everything at that flight school, yeah. uh, which is uh, which is really cool to me. Like I've seen, there's this uh, this uh, one student I see every so often. It's this, mm-hmm. uh, this young woman who uh, she brings pillows with her when she flies. Uh, just to like help give her a boost so she can see oh. over you know out, out of the front of the plane and I think that's that's uh, that's really cool that she's like she's out there you know she's uh she brings those pillows with her and her, all of her gear and you know I see her every so often like going out there and flying it's like man that's awesome like it's it, you anyone can go out there and learn if they want to right you just got to put your mind to it and uh, and just go do it you know I'm just happy to see so many people what's the age limit or is there age I mean there's got to be like a minimum I think you can start at 15. 15. Yeah, I think you can't get your license until 16 or 17, though. But you, can, I think you can start your lessons at 15. Wow. I mean, so it's like driving a car. You could theoretically get a pilot license before you get your driver's license. Wow. Okay, and then the last thing I want to mention, I didn't know this before we started. There's two different kinds of schools that you can learn at. Again, there's FAA regulations for everything. Uh, and the FAA mandate or regulate has the different rules for these. So one school is called a Part 61 school. And the other school is called a Part 141 school. And the school we go to is a Part 61 school, which is a little more informal as far as the teaching goes. A Part 141 school is very regimented. You have like a very strict set of lessons you're going to go and you have to do them all in order. Since it's not as flexible, it can have downsides. Like if there's bad weather keeping you from doing your next lesson, you can't do something else. Okay. So you kind of have like, but you know, Part 141 schools often work with colleges, universities, uh, for people who are interested in a career in aviation. And Part 61 schools are just, they give you more flexibility. You know, you can, if the weather's bad, you can take a ground lesson and do something Mm -hmm. else. Or if, you know, this plane that you want to do this maneuver on isn't available, you can go, go to use another plane. You know, it's, it just gives you a little more flexibility. I'm not saying one school is necessarily better than the other one, just that they both exist and there's different options for them. I guess it sounds like the, the more, regimented it's it's like that kind of shared experience where everyone's going through the exact same thing yeah like college or or, Mm -hmm. you know versus yeah yeah Yeah, i think the people who go to like the 141 schools are the people who want to become airline pilots as fast as possible and there are accelerated programs for that so wait why would that be faster if it's a a regiment because they might do multiple many lessons in a day they might do eight hours of lessons in a day whereas i'll go and i'll do you know Two hours, twice a week, maybe. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. Because this is, I mean, yeah. If so, someone's doing this like at, for school, school, it's probably right. faster. Yeah, they're, they're you. You have a full time job, right? I go whenever there's a morning I don't have a meeting, or you know, yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. I might go down uh, and take a lesson. All right, but I think that's about it. I, I have plenty more. I feel like I could talk about. Yeah, I'm I have sure a lot of questions. I Dennis add. does we as talk. well. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I guess if you know, we'll we'll tell the listeners if there's questions you have about the process. You know, let us know on social media at Black Box Down Pod. Maybe we'll answer via social media, or maybe we'll do another one of these um, down the road next time we have a break. I've learned, like I said, I've learned so much. I'm super enthusiastic about it, and I got to say, you know, if there's someone who's listening who's curious about it, step one is you know find a school near you and take a discovery flight. Uh, almost every school has this where, and that's what I did for my first step is you go with an instructor and you just take like a tour around your city, a tour around the airport. And it takes like 40 minutes, like a quick 40 minute flight. See how you feel about it. And if you like it, you know, find out if, uh, find out what their rates are, find out, you know, uh, how much it costs. Uh, I 
can't recommend it enough. If you've got you know the time and you've got uh, you've got the money saved to do it, I think it's absolutely worth it. It's incredible. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll see you guys uh, again soon with another supplemental episode. Thanks. Bye. Bye.